This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is a Business Radio special presentation. After the blockchain bubble, a look at how the technology works, how it can revolutionize industries, and what the blockchain and cryptocurrency world will look like going forward. Here's your host, Kevin Werbeck. Hello, everyone, and welcome to After the Blockchain Bubble, our two-hour special here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. As you heard, I'm Kevin Werbeck. I'm a professor of legal studies and business ethics here at Wharton, formerly the co-host of the digital show on Business Radio, and more recently author of the new book, The Blockchain and the New Architecture of Trust. And I'm excited to spend the next two hours with you talking about blockchain, cryptocurrencies, distributed ledger technology. Where are we and where are we going? As you probably know, if you followed this world at all, cryptocurrency prices have crashed over the last year. And many blockchain applications haven't fully taken off or matured. So was this all just a bubble? Was it all just a fad? What comes next? I'm thrilled that joining me are not two, not four, not six, but seven experts in blockchain and cryptocurrencies from a variety of perspectives, entrepreneurs, investors, authors, legal scholars, analysts, uh, all talking about uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain, people who've been in this space a long time uh, and are going to help us understand uh, where things are going and what it means for you. We're going to move on to our next guest, who is Amber Balde, co-founder and CEO of Clover. Uh, she's been on Fortune's 40 Under 40 list, uh, Coindesk's Most Influential in Blockchain. She, uh, before uh, starting Clover, uh, was the blockchain lead at J.P. Morgan Chase. And uh, I'm delighted to have her on the show. So, Amber, welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, as I mentioned, you uh, went from uh, J.P. Morgan, one of the, the biggest um, enterprise financial services players in this uh, blockchain and crypto world and in the finance world in general, uh, earlier this year to uh, launching a startup. And uh, I'm curious why and, and what is it exactly that you're doing at Clover and uh, you know, why is that important where the market is evolving today? That's, that's a big question. That's too many questions <laughs> at once. Sorry about that. <laughs> no no problem. I can start, start at the beginning, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time in, in that position speaking with uh, very large enterprises around the world, um, both banks but also corporates, um, asset managers, just up and down the spectrum of people that are trying to use uh, blockchain technology or distributed ledgers or even um, public cryptocurrency projects to do useful things for business. And it was just readily apparent that the types of applications that they wanted to build and also that were kind of being sold to them as being buildable um, are not really able to be built yet. Uh, there's a, a real lack of both maturity at the underlying protocol level, which I think gets a lot of attention in the public space, but also the kind of middleware and connectivity layer um, that businesses would need to build these sorts of things at scale. So what we're doing at Clover is building developer tooling uh, that allows you to create 
some of these applications, whether you plan on deploying that to uh, an enterprise sort of environment or to an actual public blockchain, uh, with the intention that the way that we see these things is that they will over time become a lot more connected and the lines are going to blur between them. I hope that um, larger businesses start experimenting more with connectivity out to public chains. I hope that some of the smaller startups launching out in the public space uh, become big enough that they need things that really scale and, and work um, writ large. And uh, the, the simple tools to get there right now certainly don't exist. Just uh, let anyone know if you're just tuning in that uh, this is Kevin Werbach, your host, and you're listening to After the Blockchain Bubble, our special programming on Sirius XM Business Radio. I'm speaking right now with uh, Amber Obalde, the co-founder of Clover. And uh, if you have a question or comment for us, uh, you can call in anytime, 1-844-942-7866. So, Amber, you make an interesting point about um, the the need for the the middleware and the infrastructure, even in the the permissioned or uh, enterprise blockchain space. I I was talking at the first segment with Michael Casey, who was emphasizing the scalability issues on the public blockchain side, which I think people are, are, are more familiar with that, you know, they're huge scalability issues. But uh, what is it that's that's needed uh, really for maturation on the enterprise side? What does it exactly that mean, the, the developer tooling and so forth that's needed? Yeah, I just saw an article this past week that apparently blockchain developer is the largest growing profession yeah. on LinkedIn, yeah. <laughs> which is, you know, Surprising, considering I'm not sure what tooling they're using. Um, but yeah, it's it's not just the underlying protocol maturity. Like I said, you know, if you want to connect these things to your, to existing internal systems, rather than starting with a completely greenfield application, if you're trying to incorporate some pieces of uh, either a blockchain or distributed system in general, um, you need to be able to integrate that into your existing systems, whether that's your ERP or your existing other kind of payment systems, you know, businesses aren't necessarily trying to pay everyone in crypto assets, um, or integration into disaster recovery systems, or uh, your deployability, your DevOps cycle, um, and really all of that kind of works together as an entire software development lifecycle. Most of the pilots that are being created right now are very kind of hard-coded with the intention that some of these pieces are going to be ripped out and replaced with this strategic solution, but it's kind of an unsexy problem to work on figuring out what does the long-term solution to some of these integrations, whether it's a data oracle uh, or anything else, are really going to look like. And, you know, the the world that you're talking about is, is not the uh, go-go uh, cryptocurrency trading world uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But does the, the downturn uh, in the crypto assets have any impact uh, on the, the companies you're talking to, or at least the, the mindset of executives? I think all of these things are related and it's kind of a conflated problem. They're certainly not mutually exclusive problems, but they're not really the same problem either. Uh, I think a lot of the uh, the, the focus or the hype in, on the enterprise side was partially driven by the, the exuberance out in the public crypto asset markets. And especially within the financial sector, it drove a lot of interest in figuring out how you're going to build products around that sector. And that has certainly uh, cooled off as the client interest has kind of cooled off. There aren't as many hedge funds calling and saying, when are you going to be able to you know, service my assets here? Uh, and so in that sense, I think it's actually good for the financial sector to be able to 
take their time and look at how they're really building those products, um, especially when you're trying to build, you know, setting aside distributed ledger tech. Um, but when you're looking at building uh, applications that will work with uh, digital bearer assets, it's really a whole different ball of wax. It's, is it easier to turn um, a custodian into an information security company or an information security company into a custodian, you know, it's, um, it, it, it's a, a difficult uh, problem. So in that sense, I think it's good to get a little more time on that side. Uh, on the other hand, I think that a lot of the exuberance in the whole distributed ledger sector was driven by consulting white papers and people <laughs> that don't really necessarily understand um, what you should actually be using this technology for. So I think it's great that uh, that's slowing down. It gives us an opportunity to focus on building a tool set that will make the next crop of pilots more useful. Uh, and really, anybody working in that emerging tech or innovation space in business should know, or at least put on a PowerPoint slide at some point, that nine of 10 of these things is going to fail. Um, and we knew that. That's part of what you know going into innovation projects. Um, but nobody wants it to be their project or their department. Um, so there's there's been a lot of hangers on of projects that really it would be great to see them go away so you could try again. And in terms of you know, large enterprises, you know, financial services especially, uh, obviously you can't generalize across the board, but how far along do you find the major companies are in terms of either their commitment that this technology is really something that, that we believe deserves serious investment and uh, the the maturity of understanding just where the opportunities are. It's evolving, and I, I think the educational process is a long one. Um, it's a lot easier to sell very grandiose sort of solutions that you think are going to transform an entire industry um, than it is to sell a very small, useful tool that might solve a small problem that you have in the interim, given that onboarding one small new tool, especially if it uses a new cryptographic suite that your business isn't acquainted with and uh, comes from an open source uh, community that you might not really know how to engage with. Uh, it can be hard to get over those kind of hurdles, but that's really where I think those smaller wins are better longer term. And, and businesses are starting to realize that you can tease apart this kind of hype monster that's been called blockchain into its component parts of um, both distributed systems uh, computing, but also uh, whether we're talking about publishing attestations about something to an, an immutable store, or we're talking about just coordinating data across trust boundaries, uh, even internally across trust boundaries before you even get to multiplayer scenarios. There's a lot of work that can be done there that will help your organization understand the tech and then be ready to do some of the these more visionary uh, industry-changing projects. But but does one lead to the other? Uh, I would assume it's easy just to say, okay, we've got this particular point problem. Which, if, if we're a large enterprise, is you know there, there's a lot of pain. There's there's you know, significant dollars attached to it. Um, can you get from solving that that small problem to saying, okay, now I, I want to actually go on a path to migrating some of my real core systems? I, th I think there is a path, and more than that, there's increasing um, scrutiny of how data is managed within large-scale enterprises, um, whether we're talking about GDPR kind of risks or we're talking about uh, data breach risks. People are starting to look at, at how their data is managed and the increasing risk of creating these monolithic data lakes. Uh, and so there will be more attention that can be paid to how you can break up 
some of that and keep data closer to its point of origin, um, keep the uh, authentication and access around it more strict, but still be able to drive some of the similar kind of business insights that you could get if it was it was in the same place. Um, people will start paying more attention to that. Uh, and again, you can do that within an organization or across a consortium of organizations that might not be, you know, the top three businesses in an industry getting together and deciding to do an infrastructure lift of a twenty million dollar project um, from from day one. So, I, you know, one percent of businesses have really looked at how this this technology can change their bottom line, and that's mostly because accessing it is a very high cost endeavor right now. You need those consultants. Um, you need people to come in and help you uh, help you do it. And uh, what they give you, you probably can't even maintain yourself if you don't have that existing developer and business expertise. So, I mean, that's that's one of the things that we're working on at Clover, hopefully, is really dropping the barrier to entry um, to be able to experiment, to understand how you might uh, collaborate uh, across an industry, at, you know, um, with smaller businesses and global businesses, kind of similar to how, you know, if you imagine the, the web in the early 90s, um, before we had reusable shopping carts and kind of all of these reusable components that yep. let mom and pop shops get on the internet and launch their first .com, everything you found was just Fortune 500 websites, right, um, or hobby projects. So it's that really bringing those two sides together um, that's, that can spark a much wider uh, set of adoption. And you, you've answered this to some extent, but it, today, what is it that gets executives at these firms interested and uh, willing to invest in a, you know, a blockchain or, or um, DLT type of solution? Initially, it was driving down operational costs um, more than creating top-line revenue opportunities. But I think the projects that stick around longer tend to figure out how they're going to drive real top-line business revenue. Uh, you can always find a way to kind of throw more people at a problem, or it's, it's easier to, to hide costs, I guess. Um, so the, the projects that get funded longer term tend to be doing something that's, that's really new, and that's what's more exciting, I think, to people. Mm -hmm. And then you, you also alluded to this before, but you know, one of the, the things that you fairly uniquely did at, at J.P. Morgan was straddling between the, the enterprise world and the kind of uh, crypto-anarchist public blockchain world uh, with some of the, the um, projects like Quorum, which was doing a, a permission version of, of Ethereum. Do you see movement for those worlds to come together? And, and if so, how is that happening today? Absolutely. I mean, the, the fundamental problems that we were looking at with uh, the Quorum project, which was not just about um, creating a permission version of vanilla Ethereum, that's relatively easy to do out of the box, but was to, to solve the challenges of privacy within those networks. And uh, it's not just privacy as people sometimes think of it. Uh, if, you're, if you're more familiar with a system like Bitcoin, it's really about protecting um, the identity of who owns coins or perhaps provenance of payments. But when you look at something like an Ethereum system where you have smart contracts and business logic, you can't get uh, companies together and then have them disclose their business secret sauce to each other. And necessarily, that's how the Ethereum virtual machine works right now. So. Um, there's a lot of opportunity for businesses to seize on this new privacy research um, to to solve real business problems. Um, especially, again, as I mentioned, the things around data privacy becoming important. Um, but also, uh, longer term, I think that uh, I hope all 
coins that are launched in the future are privacy coins, right? There's a, there's a real risk that if we don't put more emphasis into creating privacy-preserving systems, instead what we're creating are essentially virtual data lakes, right? And that's even worse off for or will make many people worse off if, you know, there's a lot of lip service given to take back your data, but most of the enterprise pilots don't have anything to do with that. And so if you're sharing data across boundaries, across jurisdictions, it ends up in places that you weren't expecting, people that you weren't expecting have access to it. Um, and it's, it is not really about protecting consumers so much as it can actually become a greater point of surveillance. And we're just about out of time, but uh, doesn't, though, a privacy-protecting system also lead to abuse and, and lead to regulatory problems? Not necessarily, uh, especially with a lot of the, the new research um, that's happening into ways to handle uh, selected disclosure on an opt-in basis as opposed to doing things like backdooring systems. You know, this is there's a constant tension or an ongoing tension, of course, um, that we run up to against when it comes to strong cryptography and truly privacy-preserving systems. But um, it's if you want to create a system that won't kind of bite you later, you need to really design truly privacy-preserving systems where people have consented to what they are disclosing to you. And that same thing applies to business. Businesses don't want to accidentally or find out later that things have been disclosed that they weren't expecting. You know, uh, a, yeah. a key that you maybe give to your government is fine, but when another government kind of manages to get it, um, we wouldn't want our entire national economy to be uh, on Twitter, for example. So it's important that these systems be uh, be truly privacy-preserving, not just in name only. Okay. We unfortunately have to wrap up as we have to take a break. Sorry, I can't go on more. we got a lot of guests. Amber Balde from Clover, thank you so much for being on the, on the show. Sure. Great to talk to you. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 